Listen now to the word of God. Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 13. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? that is, to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So reads the word of God. Can we hear an amen to that text? That is blessed truth, isn't it? Praise God for that. Well, whatever you needed to do to get to church this morning was worth the effort. It was worth the struggle. It was worth the battle. And I'm just assuming that most of us had to fight battles to get here today. The battle to get up on time. The battle to stay up. (laughs) The battle to press on through the irritating morning routine. A battle to lay down conflicting desires on how you'd most like to use a beautiful summer day. Or conflict in relationship that has you at odds as husband and wife. Or as parent and child. Or sibling to sibling or friend to friend. You know, a lot of things get in the way of our being present with the body of Christ on Sundays. A lot of things stand in the way of our getting to church on Sunday. A lot of things dance around in the way of our being here together with the body of Christ, don't they? Every Sunday. But today you should thank God that you fought your way through all of them by his grace and strength because of what you're going to hear today from this text of Scripture. Today, we get to the heart of the matter. Today, we get to the core reality. Today, we get to the key experience of life in this world that we desperately need to encounter, that we desperately need to embrace sometime during our sojourn here in this world. 
And I would say the earlier the better. It's the very truth we've celebrated in the baptism this morning and through the reading of Scripture in different ways. There's no greater or grander or truer or more important or more meaningful or more lasting information, insight, instruction that you could ever hear that will make a greater difference in your life from here on out than what you will hear today. Aren't you glad you made it? If you recall from last Sunday, we were moving through a series of four statements as chapter 10 opened. We see those fours, and if you have the Scripture still open on your lap, you can see them at the beginning of those verses, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, a series of four statements that were explaining Paul's affirmation in chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. There's where Paul is at in his argument here in the letter to the Romans. And each of the successive four statements in the next three verses explained the statement just made prior to it until we got to that hinge affirmation on which we said that this whole paragraph turns. That's verse 4. The paragraph is 9.30 through 10.13. We looked at the first two parts of it last week. We're going to look at the third part this week. But the key verse on which it turns is verse 4. We called that, if you recall last week, a foundational theological principle that reverberates with significance. A significance that's heard well beyond the already ample parameters of this passage to the very shores of the deep theological waters that Paul has been navigating through this section of chapters 9 through 11. Verse 4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Massively important affirmation. The life and death and resurrection and ascension and promised return of the Lord Jesus Christ brought to an end the era of the law as the outcome which the law had been anticipating all along and thus initiating the long-awaited new covenant era, the period of time in which people could actually be reconciled to God because they're declared not guilty before Him. And so therefore now they are worthy of a relationship with Him and all of that is accomplished by God's sovereign and direct intervention in fulfillment of His eternal plan and purpose. And that argument is just continuing on now into chapter 10. Today, then, we move into the last of the three parts of this paragraph with yet another four statement getting us started. A four statement that's beginning an explanation of all important theology that just came in verse 4, and especially the last part of it. Righteousness for all who believe. So this four is starting this final paragraph, and it really is over the entire thing. 
And just notice quickly then how Paul's argument develops, how it flows using one connecting word after another on the heels of that four. Do you see it? Verse 6, but a contrast. Verse 7, or an alternative. Verse 8, but again, another contrast. And then verse 9, because the rationale. And all of that before finishing with another flourish of fours in verses 10, 11, 12, and 13. Explaining everything that's gone before. Paul is finishing off this paragraph with an amazing progression of thought that he wants his people to hear, he wants his readers to hear in order to appreciate not only the fact that his heart's desire is for Israel to be saved, but also in his explanation of why it is that he can say that the word of God has not failed when they haven't been saved already, by and large. That's the section of Romans that we're in. We're going to look at this passage then in three parts, and you see those three parts listed as you do weekly in your bulletin. This will be our outline, and again, I'm not going to make much of this particular outline as we move through it, but it is helpfully worded, I think, for us to pick up the flow of the text. First of all, there is the contrasting of two ways to pursue God's righteousness. That's verses 5 through 8. Then there is the explaining of the only way to attain God's righteousness, verses 9 and 10, and then affirming that God's righteousness is available to all, verses 11 to 13. The reason I'm not going to make much out of this is because we've already said that this is part three of a three-part paragraph, and you can see from that string of connecting words that it's one thought unit itself. But it's helpful just to take it apart a little bit and see where it's going through that progression. But it really is one continuous thought. So I may make mention of this outline as we move ahead, but quite possibly not. And as we move into, for instance, verse 9 from verse 8, we're going to be moving into point 2. So that's where we're headed. Where we're beginning, though, contrasting two ways to pursue God's righteousness We want to move into verse 5 in order to see this four statement and what Paul is intending there. We're going to actually begin with a little bit of an on-ramp with that massively important biblical theological statement in verse 4. So let's read verse 4 into verse 5 in order to get us going in this text today. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law... So this is a second form of righteousness, a righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Huh. If you've been listening closely to Romans, that statement might confuse you just a bit. But that is precisely what the law says. Paul is quoting Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. That verse says, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. And then that all-important affirmation, it's God's stamp of approval. It finishes by saying, I am the Lord. So God himself speaking when he says, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. Wow, we've got to understand what that means because that's exactly what Israel's problem is that's been identified. They've been told to obey the law. They're going about obeying the law, and they believe that that's what 
enables them to be set right with God. And yet we've heard numerous times, most recently in chapter 9, that's not going to justify you. So is, Paul's teach, is Paul here teaching something different about the law than the law teaches about itself? There's the question we would be asking. You remember what he wrote back in chapter 3. He wrote, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. So is Paul teaching something different about the law than it teaches about itself? If we learn here that whoever does the commandments will live by them? I would say no, not at all. In fact, we might pick up on Paul's language, that answer he uses ten times in this letter, and say, by no means, by no means is that case. Paul is not teaching something different about the law than the law is teaching about itself. The law is a revelation of the righteousness of God and of the righteous expectation of God. That's what we see in the law. And if Israel lived according to the law, This is what Leviticus 18 is teaching. They could enjoy fellowship with God under the old covenant parameters. If they walked according to the law, they could enjoy fellowship with God. They could enjoy the benefits of obedience listed at length in Deuteronomy 28 and a number of other passages. And when they sinned, they had a covering God made provision through the sacrificial system for the forgiveness and cleansing of his people and the maintaining, the keeping of the covenant thereby. That's what kept them from facing the curses of the law or what would have kept them from facing the curses of the law. If they walked in obedience, they could live by the principles of the law. In short, The law prescribed how to live in fellowship with God until the promised fulfillment of the law arrived. You might recognize the use of that word fulfillment from Matthew 5, 17, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus himself says, didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Now we read here in Romans 10, he's the end of the law meaning he brings that era to a close, but also he's the goal to which the law has been pointing all along. So the law prescribed how to live in fellowship with God until the promised fulfillment of the law arrived, and that fulfillment, fulfillment, that end, we see here in verse 4, was Jesus, the Christ. Just the Greek word for the Old Testament, Messiah the promised one, the anointed one. What Paul is clarifying in this letter then is that the law couldn't do what Messiah did do. Namely, declare sinners not guilty before God. The law could help them maintain their relationship and fellowship until the promise of the law was fulfilled. And once the promise of the law has come, the law is finished and done. And what Messiah could do that the law couldn't do is not just maintain relationship with God. He was the one to whom the law pointed, including most specifically and helpfully and vividly the sacrificial system. Because once Christ came, the Lamb of God was slain once for all, accomplishing a salvation that would never require another sacrifice. 
The blood of bulls and goats just anticipated that, says the book of Hebrews. Christ came and fulfilled it, the end of the law. So what Messiah could do that the law could not do is remove sin. The law covered it. It maintained a tense but distant relationship. And Jesus comes and removes the barrier in his body on the tree and accomplishes the salvation, the reconciliation to God that has us, even now, who trust in him, declared legally not guilty before God. Wow. You happy for that this morning? Amen. So he could reconcile us to God. He could remove our sins as far as the east is from the west. He could absorb the wrath of God that our sins justly deserve. Remember, that's just the definition of that propitiation word used back in chapter 3. And then we could be restored into fellowship with him that has us looking forward to eternal life that we just talked about a few moments ago. So, verse 5, the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Verse 6, but, contrast, the righteousness based on faith, pause, let me comment before we finish that sentence, the righteousness based on faith says, and here Paul quotes, interestingly, quotes the Old Testament again. Not suggesting that the Old Testament contradicts itself, but towards showing to his readers that the very difference we just described a moment ago was identified and was present in the Old Testament. The Old Testament saw this tension between works and faith. And Paul is quoting Old Testament passages to clarify it to the Romans. All of that anticipates Jesus. This tension that the Old Testament sets up, where it's not contradicting itself but showing us two sides of the coin, was present in passages where the fullest meaning of the Old Testament text doesn't break forth until Jesus comes. Paul's going to do that in just a moment, but let me give you another one that's a little bit more familiar to us. Old Testament passages that, honestly, now that Jesus has come, we can't imagine what they must have meant before. Isaiah 53 is at the top of the list of such passages. Just a few verses from Isaiah 53. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 700 years before Jesus, these words written, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. On to verse 11. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. There's a text. There were Jewish interpretations, still are, of this passage that identify some potential realities to which it points. But there is nothing that fulfills it like the coming of Jesus and his death on the cross to accomplish the salvation of all who believe. Until Jesus came, the full import 
of Isaiah 53 couldn't be understood. But now that he has come, we see what that text was really talking about. Even though for the 700 years until Christ came, they're working on all different kinds of things that it pointed to, and all of those were true as well. Or shall we say most of those were true as well? There's always stretching in the application of prophecy. (laughs) Well, so it is with this passage in Deuteronomy 30. Paul is showing us something that was referred to in the Old Testament text that we wouldn't have recognized apart from Christ. In this passage, Moses was speaking of the law in Deuteronomy 30. The law that Israel didn't need to go out in search of it, but that it had been delivered right to their doorstep at Mount Sinai. But now Paul is adding explanations, these parentheses that come in verses 6 and 7. He's adding explanations here that help us see an even deeper meaning now that Christ has come. He's even tying the imagery from Deuteronomy 30 to specific saving events in the life of Christ. It's amazing. So, verse 6, But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. If you're like most of us, you say, What? What in the world is he talking about? I don't even understand why he's referencing this passage at all, not to mention tying it off to Christ. What is the connection here? That's not uncommon, by the way. Verse 7, or, contrast, who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. If you go back and look at Deuteronomy 30, you'll recognize it says, do not say who will ascend into heaven, and that's essentially to bring down the law of God, to go get the law and bring it back. Or, who will traverse the sea to go and get the word of God, the law of God, and bring it back, right? But here, Paul changes it to the abyss. There's some who who reference a psalm, perhaps, to explain that difference. But actually, as has been pointed out by many, the abyss and the sea in Old Testament and Jewish life were essentially interchangeable concepts. So it's probably the case that Paul is just quoting Deuteronomy 30 and using abyss instead of sea because that gives him a good metaphor for talking about the resurrection of Jesus. But a, 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 a transition from one word to the other that really isn't a troubling one as we read the text. Bottom line, seeing what God has purposed and then done in and through Christ to keep his promise of salvation, not just to the ethnic line through which Jesus was born, but also to those from all nations who would savingly believe in him, we recognize that we didn't need to do, and this is what he's saying in verse 7, verses 6 and 7, we didn't need to do anything more to make that happen than Israel needed to do for God to deliver the law into their hands at Mount Sinai. Israel didn't have to go to heaven to get the law and bring it back down so that they'd know what it says and try to obey it. They didn't have to traverse the sea to go find the law of God and bring it back in order to know what it says and to do it. And what Paul is saying is, Christian, neither did you. 
You, didn't, you couldn't even have conceived of what Christ has done. So surely, when it comes time for your salvation, your effort isn't going to make a bit of difference. It's not needed. God has this plan, and he's working it out. You didn't need to go to heaven to get Christ and bring him down and say, we need a Savior. Would you do this for us? You didn't need to ascend to the abyss once he had paid for your sins to bring him up from the dead and say, Christ, you know what? It's not good to stay there. We need you to rise from the dead, or there won't be any victory over sin and death. That's what Paul's talking about. That's why he's quoting Deuteronomy 30. We didn't need to go find the law of God. God brought it to the mountain and put it in their hands, written on stone. The strongest picture that could have been. God communicating with his people, doing his work, playing out his plan of salvation. And now Paul is using that text to say, Christian, you don't need to do anything more than Israel needed to do when the law was given to them in order for your salvation to be accomplished. By the eternal plan of God, Christ has come. By the eternal plan of God, he died a sacrificial death for the sins of all who believe and rose again from the dead. I have the authority to lay down my life and to take it up again, Jesus says in the Gospel of John. Paul's saying, trust in that. The word of God failed? Are you kidding me? From where could we possibly ask that question? Paul is making it abundantly clear. (laughs) By no means has the word of God failed. God did all of this. The delivery of the law and the delivery of salvation the one who is the end of the law, and he did it all without our help in the least. So Paul is telling his readers that even the Old Testament here has told them that salvation is not about doing. What he's telling them in Deuteronomy 30, don't miss the point, is you didn't have to do something For your salvation, the law of God was given to you, and yes, you need to live in light of it in order to enjoy its blessings and its benefits. But your doing is not what is going to reconcile you to God. Your doing just acknowledges what God has done for you, and it lives in grateful and thankful obedience to that. And all of that is in the Old Testament. The doing and the faith. If you do these things, you will live by them. You'll live in this joyful fellowship with God, even prior to his salvation being delivered. But, but, don't forget, salvation is of the Lord. It's not about your doing. Your doing is just your affirmation of what God has done. So Paul is telling his readers that even the Old Testament has told them that salvation is not about doing. Verse 8, but this next contrast, what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Continuing this quotation, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. God has done it. He's put it right there in you. Maybe an image would be helpful here to borrow from and also to to mix together the language and imagery of Ezekiel's and Jeremiah's respective prophecies of the new covenant. 
just as God did the work to write his law on stone tablets, he's done the work to write it on the tablet of his people's hearts. Our salvation, our cleansing, our regeneration, the the, the work that has the Spirit of God accomplishing in us that which he has purposed to accomplish is like our playing the role of the stone tablets on Mount Sinai. God writing his law into our hearts. Salvation is the Lord's work. Doing the law never achieved anything more than merely maintaining relationship with God through the sacrificial system, which also prefigured his ultimate saving work in Christ. But God's aim was always, always to conform his people's hearts to his character, exhibited most clearly in Christ. He didn't just want to change their behavior during their sojourn in this world. He's changing their eternal destiny. And when we say that, God's aim has always been to conform his people's hearts to his character displayed in Christ. Do you hear Romans chapter 12 on the horizon? Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's where Paul's headed. And you can already hear him ramping up toward that in the middle of chapter 10. It's actually prior to that, but it's explicit here. So we won't spend that much time on each of the next sections. These will move a little more quickly. When we turn to explaining the only way to attain God's righteousness, which we've already anticipated, but now here in the text, you see how this is one unbroken thought. It's not new as it arrives in verse 9. We see this as Paul moves from his last contrast and the but statement of verse 8 into his because clause in verse 9. So we're seeing here a rationale for tying the deepest meaning of Deuteronomy 30 to the work of Christ. Because that's challenging exegesis. That's challenging Bible study. To read Deuteronomy 30 and say that's pointing to Jesus, we probably wouldn't do it without Paul's help. But once Paul has given us the help to do it, he's going to explain to us why it's so. And that's where he goes next. His rationale for tying the deepest meaning of Deuteronomy 30 to the work of Christ Verse 8 says, but the word of God is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He's again picking up the imagery from Deuteronomy 30 and giving it specific meaning with regard to how salvation is actually received. In contrast to doing the law, he's picking up the heart and mouth imagery there and infusing it with gospel meaning. That's a really important point to understand. Paul hasn't just given a new set of laws here. He's not just updating the legal demand for what we now need to do. He's actually showing us the gospel difference. Namely, to confess and to believe, to receive, and to trust. He's describing the essence of faith here. What it looks like to express faith. Confession, affirmation. 
and he's tying it to the heart and mouth imagery of Deuteronomy 30. Do you see it? Verse 10, he explains it further. Now the four statements begin because he's explaining the because that just came. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with the heart that one believes and is justified, is declared not guilty before God. And with the mouth that one confesses and is saved. In other words, it is a belief in the heart that runs so deep it can't help but be confessed. Spoken from the mouth. So there's no magic words that Paul is referencing here when he says confess with your mouth. It's not just the mere affirmation, Jesus is Lord, that's important. It's the transformation of heart that recognizes that Jesus is Lord. It's not the words themselves, but the heart disposition that has flowed forth in the words. It is a belief in the heart that runs so deep it can't help but confess. So there's no magic words, no incantation, no recitation that need to be uttered aloud in order to be saved. There just needs to be a belief in the heart that cannot help but flow out of the mouth. It's a transformed life that's being described here. Verse 11, for Scripture says, now returning to Isaiah 28. Remember Isaiah 28 was quoted at the beginning, back in chapter 9, verse 33, the beginning of this paragraph. Now he's coming back to it at the end, showing us that this is one thought unit. For Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. You recognize the language from 9.33. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. He's still on point with his argument from the beginning of 9. For the same Lord is Lord of all. No distinction. In Christ, the dividing wall of separation between Jew and Gentile broken down in his body on the trees so that they are saved into one and the same people of God, family of God, bride of Christ. Fulfilling all of the promises to Old Testament Israel and grafting in Gentiles into those blessings. An image that we'll encounter in the next chapter. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For, the last one today, now quoting Joel 2, verse 32. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel's wonderful prophecy of the new covenant as well that Peter quoted from on the Sermon on the Day of Pentecost. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the everyone here is emphasizing not just any who decide to do it. The emphasis is on Jew and Gentile. Whether you're Jewish background or non-Jewish background, if you call on the Lord, you will be saved. So surely, 
the word of God has not failed. And not just because he intended only a remnant of ethnic Israel to be saved from the very start, as we saw at the end of chapter 9, but also because the salvation of the nations was his aim from the start as well. And that plan is continuing on just fine in the current salvation of the Gentiles. And it's being suspended for a period of time through the judicial hardening of the Jews, which again we will see in chapter 11. Now, Paul isn't finished yet defending his bold affirmation in 9.6 that the word of God has not failed. Indeed, we still have the whole of chapter 11 in addition to the remainder of chapter 10 here to cover that. But we've come far enough in Paul's argument for us to understand why I made the bold claim that I made as we started this morning. Remember it? I said, today we get to the heart of the matter. Today we get to the core reality, the key experience of life in this world that we desperately need to encounter and embrace sometime during our sojourn here. And the earlier the better. I said there's just no greater or grander or truer or more important or more meaningful or more lasting information or insight or instruction that we could ever hear that will make a greater difference in our lives from here on out than what we've heard this morning. Do you remember that statement? I want to see if we've overpromised, and I don't believe we have. When you hear what Paul has written here, you understand exactly what I mean. What is it that I'm talking about? I think you'll hear it most clearly if we just listen to the Word of God. If we just string together verses 9 and 10 and 13, you'll hear that message that you should be glad you heard. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, justified, reconciled to God for time and eternity. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. My friends, that's the testimony of Old Testament Scripture. Made accessible to us in this new covenant era because Christ the end of the law has come and done precisely the saving work that Scripture promised that he would do. Reconciling to God all who receive him by faith. That's the message we preach week by week here at Grace Church of DuPage. And there are few passages in the Bible that say it more clearly or more directly than this one. This is a call to believe and receive the gospel that every one of us needs to hear. Every one of us needs to believe and to receive. Children, 
youth, teenagers, college students, adults, senior citizens, every one of us needs to hear and receive and believe this statement. So please, just, just listen to me this morning. Each and every one of you, just, just listen to me now. Look in my eyes as though we're having a personal conversation, just you and me. Have you done this? Have you done this? And if not, how about today? Right now? Why would we leave the offer of eternal salvation at God's own cost on the table as a gift refused? Why? Please join me as we pray. Father, as persuasively as we long to proclaim this text, as deeply as we desire all whom we know and love to hear and respond to and believe and receive this text, we recognize by this text ahead of almost all others in Scripture that salvation is your work. And so, Father, having appealed to each one here to listen to the voice of your Spirit and to the penetrating power of your Word, we ask that your Spirit would move among us now. And even as we have celebrated salvation explicitly through the baptism testimonies that we have heard, and as we have celebrated it symbolically by listening to the story of the servant's pursuit of a wife for Isaac. And as we have heard Paul's direct challenge here of how salvation happens, proving, demonstrating that the word of God has not failed. Oh God, open our eyes and our hearts. And I pray that there would be some in this room this morning who for the first time would saving, savingly believe, place their trust in Christ, hearing the call of your spirit through your word to the eternal praise of your glory and grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.